And now, from the Santon Time Studios in Africa's richest square mile, this is the Santon Times Podcast with your host, Alexander. Oh, my fingers are getting sore from playing that guitar every week. Oh, there we go. Uh, Saturn Times Podcast. Welcome, welcome. Episode 48, week 15. It's April 2021. I hope you're well. I hope you're safe. Wherever you are in the world, welcome. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email editor at santantimes.ca.today. You can connect on social media at Santon Times. You can visit the blog, www.santantimes.ca.today. Why not just make it one of your bookmarks, one of your favorite sites to go to? We're uploading content probably three times a day with competitions, with all kinds of funky stuff. You can get the podcast on there. You can watch the YouTube videos, all the content in one place, today. And don't forget, you can subscribe, share, and leave a review or rating for this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Outcast, any of them. Any of the, the big podcast platforms, we're on there, and you're listening to the Santon Times podcast on those platforms. Welcome to you, wherever you're listening, uh, if you're in Greater Santon or beyond, including this past week, Botswana, Chile, Canada, Namibia, Vietnam, and Malta. All of you are welcome in Santon land, and all is well in Santon land. You're part of the Santon Nation if you are reading the Santon Times on a regular basis. Not too much happening this past week. Uh, sure, loads of new content on the website, as I mentioned, that's been keeping me very busy, including, I must mention, this is a great Tasha's competition. So if you're a big Tasha's fan, you can win her latest cookbook on the today, and we're also giving away a food voucher. So if you want to go eat there, cool. If you want to cook her recipes, got that as well. So you can get both, and uh, you've got to enter sooner rather than later. Go onto the website and uh, check out that competition. Yeah, past week, what have we been doing? Oh, yeah, there's a new hotel that's coming up in Santon, which is really cool. Went to go do a site visit there. It's still semi-under construction, so we have a video coming up about that. It's uh, ready to rock and roll soon. They've got a spa, put solar panels on the roof, which is quite interesting. So they're powering quite a bit of the hotel with uh, solar power. But amazing to see that there's properties popping up even in 2021, when everyone's complaining about how the industry's going. And if you went into the santantimes.ca.za this past week, you would have seen we did an article on all the hotels that have been closed for a year and that are still closed in Santon. I mean, it's quite a big chunk of the hospitality industry in Santon that is still not operating. Crazy stuff, but go check out that article. It's quite interesting. Uh, we spoke to some of the big players in the hotel industry in Santon about what's going on, what's happening. And then we're planning a trip to the Eastern Cape in the not-too-distant future. So if you've got any cool suggestions, any ideas, uh, anything you want us to go have a look at, uh, mail me, editor at santantimes.co.za. Coming up in this episode, we've got uh, property in South Africa, which remains on an all-time up, and it's a buyer's market, it seems. Well, we find out more about that with one of the big CEOs. Uh, he looks after... Pam Golding. Then uh, Miss Universe South Africa revealed her national costume for this year's competition taking place in May. Uh, we chat to her designer to the stars about this uh, creation. Then if you're into sweet treats, there is one donut that has outlasted all in South Africa. And we chat to the managing director to discuss their sweet success. And finally, following the Easter long weekend, we have a candid conversation with an ER trauma doctor from Cape Town and give you a front row seat to the aftermath of a part alcohol ban. But first, let's take a look at your news to go. Alarm! Alarm! 
Yeah, there's a spike in home break-ins. Uh, Fidelity ADT has released a statement tracking a rise in the number of armed house robberies across Johannesburg. Fidelity ADT alone has recorded 33 incidents in the north of Johannesburg, with Bryanston, Petervale, Paultoff and Wendywood recording the highest numbers of armed robberies. <laughs> There have been 16 recorded incidents in Bryanston and surrounding areas, 10 in Wendywood areas and surrounds, and 7 in the fourways and surrounding areas. Uh, Chanel Hatting, Head of Marketing and Communications for Fidelity ADT, commented, In our experience, we have found that security measures like electric fences, detection beams, and closed-circuit television are still key deterrents to crime, as are pets. Uh, for homeowners, small dogs that sleep inside the house are seen as a deterrent. How secure your neighborhood is is also a meaningful factor. If robbers are scouting carefully, they will view regular patrol and a strong neighborhood watch system as a good reason to move on. Uh, she carries on. The bottom line is you always need to remain vigilant, act as if you're being watched, and take all necessary precautions. Your security starts with having the correct domestic and gardening employees who are well vetted and au fait with your security protocols to having the right security measures around your home, uh, to living in a community that supports and has a good security protocol. So that's just something to become aware of. And I think maybe whilst people are working from home, you've maybe been a little bit complacent. Uh, you've probably um, not been doing what you should be doing. And uh, things happen. So you've got to be careful, be safe, and uh, just keep doing what you were doing before when you were still going to work. You know, now just because you're working from home doesn't mean you should leave the patio door open all the time. Anyway, the 69th Miss Universe pageant uh, SA National Costume has been revealed. Uh, Miss Universe South Africa Natasha Joubert will be wearing her national costume designed by Gert Johan Kutsier, while Yolandi Fushier of Yolachi Couture is responsible for a number of evening gowns for the 69th Miss Universe pageant taking place in Florida in the United States on 16th May 2021. We're actually chatting to Gert-Johan in this episode, so stay listening. Natasha will be carrying the children of South Africa with her when she walks onto the international stage at Miss Universe in her national costume as the fabric wings of her unique gown have been printed with drawings made by young children from Deep Slit and Randburg. I'm not going to give away too much more in that interview we're doing a little bit later. What I do want to tell you is, is that the the pageant will take place at the Seminole Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Hollywood, Florida. And Miss Universe takes place from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. on 17 May 2021. So if we want to watch Miss Universe, we're going to have to be up at 2 o'clock in the morning. All right, we'll make a plan. Enough. Okay, 50 Woolworths go plastic shopping bag free end of April. Uh, Woolworths has announced that an additional 50 stores plus two new stores will be single-use plastic shopping bag free by the end of April 2021. This is in addition to the 145 stores in 2020 that went single-use plastic shopping bag free. Of late, Woolworths has also changed their avocado packaging on all varieties with a polystyrene plastic punnet being replaced with a craft box base made from 63% recycled paper, which equates to an annual plastic saving of between 35 and 45 tons and is covered with a fully recyclable shrink wrap. Then victory for illegal bompers road occupants. And News 24 reports that the Red Ants evicted a group of people who were occupying a property in Dunkeld, Johannesburg, uh, in Bompers Road. So if you know Bompers Road, you kind of head up Bompers Road, driving away from Dunkeld uh, West Shopping Center, and it's directly on the left. I think it's sort of like an orange 
wall, very tall walls. And uh, behind those walls, there were a whole bunch of people living there. In an urgent application by the Socio-Economic Rights Institute, uh, representing the 35 occupants, the South Gauteng High Court ruled the eviction unlawful. So guess what? The group can go back to occupying the property until the case is finalized in court. The article quotes a lady who had lived on the property for 11 years. 11 years? Is that possible? And then finally, recycling tax. Uh, the city of Johannesburg has proposed the formal introduction of a recycling levy as part of its 2021-2022 tariff changes, reports Business Tech. Included as a separate charge from the refuse levy, the recycling charge will focus on the separation of waste at the source of generation, which includes households. The city's waste management bylaws have made it mandatory for every household within the city of Johannesburg's jurisdiction to separate waste at their household and businesses you know we're all for recycling i don't know if we need to uh, get more charges added to our bill already i mean aren't we paying enough come on man this is the santon times podcast follow us on social media so one of those markets that's done really well even though the COVID-19 pandemic supposedly created uh, some real hurdles is the property market. I was reading a couple of articles recently where people were saying that people are buying more and more sort of first-time home buyers moving up the ranks. There's people looking at secondary properties. And uh, even though we had things like deeds offices closed during COVID-19, it seems like property is really starting to move again. And uh, I'm thrilled to be joined uh, by Dr. Andrew Golding. He is uh, the CEO of Pam Golding uh, Property Group. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast interview. Uh, Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, What's the temperature on your side as you look at the property market in 2021 in South Africa? What, What are you seeing in the market? Yes, I think we were we were all taken by surprise post lockdown in that the market was significantly better than we uh, had expected it to be. And I think that was off the back of some pent up demand, obviously, with the property market being shut down for a couple of months. But then mainly as a result of the low interest rate environment and the fact that this the current market conditions have essentially catalyzed a number of trends in the, the country generally across a number of different uh, market segments. And those conditions have effectively continued uh, into this year. And certainly for the foreseeable future, we see those trends uh, continuing. So I think we are in a very fortunate space from a property industry perspective, because we certainly seem to be taking advantage of, of conditions that I think not everyone expected. How have you seen your business change during this time? I mean, Pam Golding has been around for quite some time. I mean, it's a a business with a lot of history, with a lot of experience in the market. But this must have been a, a year where you've had to look at your business model in a very different way. Yeah, it was certainly quite dramatic. In fact, it's almost exactly a year ago that I think we were all faced uh, with, the, with the prospect of reviewing uh, what we thought was going to be a sustainable business model going forward in this sort of new pandemic environment. Uh, We used the time during lockdown to effectively digitize our entire business and and operating processes. We imagined that there might be the possibility for a protracted period of time for at least 12 months where we wouldn't be able to engage physically with clients. And so as a consequence of that, we essentially set out uh, with the objective being to ensure that we were able to transact in a completely paperless and non-contact environment and set ourselves up to do that and came out of lockdown with that in mind. I think we've been pleasantly surprised with the extent to which the market has in fact responded. 
we are able to show properties and we now have a mix really of a, a digital processing business, but a business where our agents are still able to able are able to engage personally and in some cases in, in the physical presence of clients and show homes physically. So certainly has been a dramatic change for the business and one that, you know, I think in hindsight was probably coming. And I think you, you're seeing in a number of businesses trends that were probably on their way uh, being dramatically accelerated by the advent of the pandemic and our business is no different. What are you finding buyers right now looking for when they're looking at a property? Has anything significantly changed uh, from before all of this started happening? And- yeah, there have been, there've been a number of, of structural changes that we've seen take place. I think you know, they range from, from home buyers looking for more space. So the work from home phenomenon, the remote work phenomenon has undoubtedly catalyzed a trend around people saying, well, if I'm going to work from home, I may need some more space. So that's either by by looking to convert existing space into repurposed space, or in fact, looking for new homes with uh, with more space to enable them to do that. We've also seen the emergence of, as a consequence of the remote work environment, people saying, I can, I can work from anywhere and therefore I can make different lifestyle considerations about where I'm going to live. And so we've seen the emergence of the so-called Zoom towns, where as a consequence of lifestyle considerations, people are in fact choosing to live there and potentially commute back to where they formerly uh, were working from. We've also seen a structural change in terms of people's buying behaviors around the commuting environment. So whereas pre-COVID, the length of time that it took one to commute from home to work and back again was a very important phenomenon. Now with people potentially going into work much less often, that's become much less of a consideration. Another trend is that we've seen that pre-COVID, the sectional title market uh, where the lock up and go environment was effectively uh, driven by things like the commuting distance and the convenience of lock up and go. That's been to some extent now counterbalanced by the fact that people are saying, well, I want to, I'm going to be living and working in the same environment and therefore I'm prepared to make different, slightly different lifestyle choices. And as a consequence of that, uh, freehold homes which uh, were slightly less popular than, than sectional title homes are again gathering uh, predominance. We've also seen the, the second, the so-called second home market um, certainly a benefit from the post-lockdown uh, or post-COVID environment where so-called holiday home towns have now become primary home towns and, and as a consequence of that, people are being able to, to live and work. So there have been really a number of, of significant trends. Uh, another one which has taken us by surprise has been the extent to which international buyers have have also said, look, if I'm going to be able to live and work from anywhere, well, then I'll maybe live and work in South Africa where I hadn't intended that to be a place where I would be permanently residing. And so we've seen a number of international buyers, both from the African continent and from other places around the world, uh, making quite significant purchase decisions based on that. I find that quite interesting, that last observation, especially because my question was going to be, you know, how has that international market done? Because with the prospects of potentially not being able to travel somewhere for an extended period of time because you're locked up in your own country, uh, you might not want to be stuck uh, with a property on the other side of the world uh, that you might or might not be able to access easily. So it's interesting to see that people are uh, looking to move to South Africa uh, and work from here. Uh, What areas are you finding uh, are particularly attractive at the moment when it comes to this property market? So I think the market's been strong uh, right throughout. There's no doubt that the the low mortgage interest rates have um, have catalyzed the entire market essentially from the bottom up. And there's no question that that 
is pushing the entire market upwards. But pretty much across the board, we've seen um, you know brisk trade. We've seen significant interest from buyers initially looking to take um, the opportunity of of perhaps to some distress in the form of sellers or sellers who were uncertain in the market. Um, and that was definitely a buyer's market. I think we've started to see a bit more balance in the market now where sellers are saying, well, look, looks like there might be a bit of a shortage of stock that's appearing in some of the markets. And so perhaps we're going to hold out for our price a bit longer. And generally speaking, there's been a you know pretty good balance between buyers and sellers in, in recent times. Um, and that's certainly been characteristic of the market uh, in most parts of the country. We've seen um, virtually in every province and in, in every area within those provinces, um, um, well-priced and correctly priced properties selling very quickly where, where there's significant buyer demand. Properties that uh, are still you know, overpriced and outside of the market and hoping for a premium, those definitely take a bit longer. So we're, we're seeing that as a general trend across most areas of the market. But obviously, from a, a market size perspective, Johannesburg and the greater Gauteng area is still the most significant size of market in the country and therefore you know, continues to be a dominant force across the other markets as well. One of the things we've seen in Santon uh, of late is uh, this emptying out of office spaces, excess commercial space in terms of office space, and a lot of that now being converted into residential space. It seems to be incredibly popular. Um, do you believe that's sort of uh, the way that a lot of things will be going, that we'll be seeing uh, more residential space entering into these sort of CBD spaces, maybe even in Durban and in Cape Town, and sort of counterbalancing the lack of office space or the, the office space that is no longer needed? Yeah, I think it's it's something we are seeing in the other metros in South Africa as well as in Gauteng. And obviously, it's a global phenomenon too. So it's it's something that we are seeing right across the globe. And it is something that I think um, developers and commercial property owners are having to look at around the repurposing of seemingly uh, redundant commercial space. I do think there's going to be something of a comeback in terms of that office space to some extent once the market normalizes, whenever that's going to be. But for now, certainly, there does appear to be a significant opportunity to convert unused or redundant office space into residential. And we're certainly seeing that with significant uptake of that residential by uh, the market at the moment. We've seen also a lot of business having to rearrange the way they do things. I mean, the whole process of disintermediation. Uh, we've seen a lot of businesses disrupted even before the COVID-19 pandemic. How do you see the real estate business at some point being disrupted? Do you think there will ever be a point where estate agents might also find themselves in the same situation like many other industries where they almost become obsolete or their, their involvement becomes less in the process? Yeah, I think one can never say never, but certainly for now, I think that there is a, a value add uh, and a requirement from both home buyers and home sellers to use an intermediary who is an expert and who can shepherd and handhold those individuals through the very nuanced and generally complicated process of uh, the buying and selling of a home. There are many, many uh, different processes from start to finish across what is usually a three to six month process of engagement. And certainly for now, um, we think that the balance lies between automating as many processes as possible, uh, digitizing what can be digitized, but at the same time, enabling agents to, to do what they do best, which is to provide personalized service, a customized service, and one which adds value to the transaction in a way that the uh, the digitized processes can't. So we, we think that for certainly for now, 
there is a significant opportunity for for an added value uh, service, which is uh, difficult to disintermediate. Well, Dr. Andrew Golding is the Chief Executive of Pam Golding Property Group. I thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, I wish you happy property selling as uh, the market is uplifting. And we hope uh, to chat again soon. Thanks very much. The latest news. The biggest names. The best destinations. The hottest entertainment. This is the Santon Times Podcast. Well, Miss Universe South Africa, Natasha Jobert has revealed uh, some of the outfits she will be wearing when the 69th Miss Universe pageant gets underway in May this year. And uh, South African designer Gert Johan Kutsia is responsible for the national costume and he joins me on the line right now. Gert, I must be quite honest, uh, when I was told I'm going to do this interview with you, I wasn't sure what to wear. Do, do you get that a lot? Do people often say that? <laughs> I must say... I do get that a lot, but I'm normally the one that's dressed the worst because, you know, when your life is about making other people look beautiful, you sometimes don't get to yourself as often. Well, kind of makes me feel a hell of a lot better. Now, tell me, uh, how did you come up with Natasha's design for her national costume? You know what? I wanted something quite iconic. I love collaborating with people, and I think for any successful project anywhere in the world, you, you have to collaborate with people. So it was this beautiful mashup between Natasha, Wagner Vessels, of course, he's the creative director of Miss South Africa, and then myself. Um, in December, um, Cardi B wore um, one of my um, pieces from my previous collection called Kral Kachuert, and um, it was quite similar. And I think that is kind of like my way of unlocking and showing the world what African couture looks like. Because if you think about couture worldwide, you know what couture looks like on the runways of Paris. You know what it looks like all around the world. But in South Africa, we have not completely explored yet where it could go. So I, I wanted really to show off what, what South African and African excellence can be like. And I wanted to just show off the incredible craftsmanship that we have in South Africa. So that is all the beautiful beads that just dangling from Natasha's snatched little tiny, tiny waist. And then um, the most special part about this outfit was the children. Um, they asked children from all over the country to do sketches, really uh, drawings, really showcasing their COVID experience and, and, and how they have come through that. Um, and, and, and how that has impacted their lives. And what we've done, then done is we cut out those um, little sketches and we stuck them all over the dress, had it printed on this gorgeous flowy fabric and created the national costume with that. And I think for me, um, I always say I love fashion with a purpose and I love things with meaning. And I think this dress has got so much meaning behind her, uh, behind it and, and, and on it and, and just really the what it stands for. I think it's just such a message of inspiration and hope. Do you have a little bit of insight into what the Miss Universe's uh, judges are looking for in these national costumes? And did that also sort of give you a bit of direction as to where to go with the design? You know what? I don't think there's any exact way they want it. I think it's just really showcasing your country the best that you possibly can. I mean, if you look at other national costumes that we've had before, it has always had a lot of meaning. And I think that is what, what makes South Africa win Miss Universe so often is because the girls here, when they land there, they are so prepared that they are just very, very hard competition to, to, to keep up with. Well, listen, from your lips to God's ears, I hope we have another one, uh, another victory this year. One of the questions I want to ask you is that, is it easier when you've got more time to design that dress? Or do you come up with your best work when you're under pressure? Because I know you've often had people just phoning you on a Monday and saying, listen, I need a, a rock star dress for the Oscars on Saturday. Can you do it? Uh, yeah. when, when do you produce your best work? 
I think it's always different. We try not to have those last-minute things. So, so um, I am I'm very good at saying no to something. Uh, and I think for your own sanity, you kind of have to. Because when I take things on so last-minute, I love it. It's a rush and it's a thrill. But it's unfair to my team and the, the people that works with me because it, it also puts a lot of pressure on them. Um, so I try and generally um, not to take things on last-minute. It is fun, and I used to, so I'm guilty. We all are guilty of doing last-minute things, but um, I think the last couple of five or six years, we've tried really hard to really keep a schedule and keep a plan out there so that you can always produce your best work. I love the feeling of showing something and knowing it is the best possible version of what it could have been. It's not something that you look at afterwards and you're like, I should have maybe, uh, you know, I, I, I don't like that feeling, so I like to be prepared. Well, Khadji, you just mentioned uh, Cardi B just now uh, wearing one of your outfits in December, and I think that blew up on social media quite dramatically. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable. But you seem to be going from one success to the next success, and I was watching this fascinating documentary by Austrian pop star Falco, and he mentioned when his hit Rock Me Amadeus went to number one in the US, he actually got unbelievably stressed as opposed to unbelievably excited because he realized that he now has to outdo himself to actually come up with the next big number one hit or the next big performance. Do you feel the same way? I mean, do you have a, a similar experience you go through every time you, you whip out a dress and it just absolutely goes all over the show? I'm, I'm in a constant state of anxiety about that exact thing. I'm busy working on my, um, my collection, my new collection that I'm going to be showcasing soon. And I'm just thinking, how will I top this? Because now I was worried about how would I top that, but yet God is good. And he always gives you an answer. So, um, so, so um, it, it's, it's a constant stress. It's so true what you're saying, that you're always worried that you won't be able to. Gert, I know you also brought out a really great a range of uh, sort of everyday ready-to-wear clothing that you were selling online. You were doing quite a bit uh, of e-tailing uh, long before I think the pandemic uh, made it uh, fashionable. Uh, how is that range doing? So very well. So um, I'm, I'm so happy that our online store, the shophat.com store, is in the top three stores in the country. So that is that is quite nice. I, I get asked often, why don't you have a physical store? And I don't think it's necessary. I think the people that really want to would come to the studio and come by it physically at the studio. But um, online is worldwide. And um, we do worldwide shipping for free. So we've really like sorted that nuts and bolts of that that art so beautifully um, and and it's it, it's just fabulous it's just really something creative that you can do you can put it out there you put it on social media either people like it or they don't um so it is it's just effortless and um i think what really helped us through the the, the pandemic was the perfume just in february last year um i launched my first order parfum um, into skin cosmetics. So that is the only physical place where you can buy Khajan Kutsia, and, and that's the perfume assault there. But, um, and then the lockdown happened. And, and, and I was so sad that I couldn't do all this PR unrolling that we wanted to do with the perfume. But it actually turned out so well because um, there was a stage where the perfume was one of the only things that we could sell through lockdown, that and masks. So it really came at just the right time. I think I remember you, uh, there was something online, I'm sure, where you mentioned the, you were going to launch the perfume and there was a, a big sort of uh, launch planned and that was all kind of just went to the history books because obviously lockdown happened. But I'm glad to hear it's doing very well. Had you've also got uh, a sustainable sort of fashion showcase happening at the Diamond Walk in Santon City. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that as well. So that is lots of fun. Um, I think when you talk sustainability, people don't really know what that means and what it is. 
but like the t-shirt that I'm wearing right now, it looks like and, and feels like a normal t-shirt, but it's actually takes seven plastic bottles that gets picked up on the streets of South Africa to make one of these t-shirts. And I think exhibitions like that is telling people stories that um, recycled clothes, green things are necessarily always made of straw. Um, it, it can be something gorgeous. It can be something that you want to wear. And, and I take that responsibility as a designer very seriously to create gorgeous, sustainable clothes that's desirable that people want to wear. So I don't want it to be somebody must buy something because it is sustainable just for that reason. If they actually wanted something else that's not, I want to create stuff that is beautiful and desirable and it also happens to be sustainable. So I'm trying to really reinforce that message into the fashion industry that we must all just try a little bit harder um, and, and be a little bit more creative to create clothes that is beautiful and sustainable. Well, this diamond walk showcase that you've got is not necessarily something you'll be able to wear out on the streets because I know some of it's made out of uh, sort of paper bags and, and all kinds of plastic bags or whatever, but it really just sort of showcases the creativity and <laughs> using a lot of these items to to kind of make something that you could potentially wear. Um, yeah out and about so what's nice about the diamond walk exhibition there is those crazy avant-garde recycled packet dresses but then there's also um gowns like proper evening gowns proper day wear that is also an exhibition that's also made from um, sustainable materials or in sustainable ways so it's really you can see the whole story kind of like um like like, like unfading in front of you well Kat, i was going to say good luck for the uh pageant in May, but knowing you, I, I really have no doubt that this is going to absolutely rock the boat. Uh, I mean, there's been a couple of pictures out already. Uh, Natasha looks like an angel. I mean, I think you've got a fantastic model as well that really yeah. also just takes it home. I mean, that must be there must be sort of a percentage of the job done already. Um, yeah. You know, never mind the, the flowing dress that you've designed that looks absolutely great. And I think uh, the story is what really does such a good job the provenance of the dress with the with the uh, the kids print on on the on the fabric well fingers crossed I, i'm sure you'll be watching you're not going to be in florida are you no no but i'll definitely be watching from home absolutely well Khad, i'll be joining you uh, virtually as well watching that with the rest of south africa he is uh, south africa's go-to designer of the stars and uh, well picked and Khad, thank you so much for making the time to be uh, part of this interview thank you for having me from Santin to the world, this is the Santin Times Podcast. So I'm going to kick off for my next interview with a little bit of a story. And it's a personal story, and you might think that I've completely lost my mind, but uh, it's a great story. So a couple of years back, Krispy Kreme enters South Africa, and they decide to open a store at the Gau train station in Santin. So it was the eve of my birthday, and I thought, you know what? Once in a while, you've got to do something completely crazy uh, to mark your birthday. So I whip out a chair, and I go and stand in the queue for the opening of the Krispy Kreme at the Gau train station in Santon. It started off at somewhere past 10, 9, 10 o'clock at night because you had to get into the queue early because I think the first three people got sort of a box of donuts for a year. Then the people after that got sort of a box of donuts so once a week for a year. I mean, there was different sort of tiers at which you could qualify for donuts. And I thought, you know what? What's the worst that could happen? I could end up with donuts for a year. You know, let me tell you, it, it, that's exactly what happened. So I ended up sitting through a whole night <laughs> outside the car train station, outside the Krispy Kreme. At finally 5 a.m. arrived. Let me tell you, nothing like 
spending a night on the streets of Santon. I mean, there were a couple of other people as well. It wasn't just me. There was a guy who'd been there for two days already. Uh, he started queuing quite some time before me. And uh, anyway, the doors are open. There was a ribbon cutting. And needless to say, I ended up with a box of donuts every week for a year. And uh, I think towards the end of that year, I was very popular with friends and family because every time we had a lunch or a dinner or something, guess who rocked up with a box of original Krispy Kreme donuts? Anyway, that is the intro to my next uh, interview with Jerry Thomas. He is uh, the Managing Director of Krispy Kreme in South Africa. Jerry, it's great to have you on this, uh, on this interview. Great to be here. Five years, 23 stores. What's been the recipe for your success in terms of managing to keep an international brand going in South Africa, which a lot of other international brands have really struggled to do? I think primarily it's about the fact that it's a unique brand, it's a unique concept, a pedigree of over 80 years established globally, and uh, the barriers to entry for competitors are, are high. So with the proprietary ingredients that we use, you know, this pedigree of, of being able to, to leverage on marketing principles and, and experience principles over, over the last five years, we managed to establish a brand and we managed to establish brand love and products resonates with the consumer, but I think it's more about the experience resonating with the consumer. It's something different. Uh, Jerry, you also uh, you also do quite a bit in terms of brand collaborations, where you're taking Krispy Kreme, you're sort of collaborating with uh, one of the big players, be it Nestle, be it you know any of the other sort of confectionery manufacturers. How does that process work? I mean, is there sort of a, a royalty involved? Uh, do you have to sort of uh, work out something with them, or do they kind of come along and say, "Listen, we've always wanted to do a flake donut. Let's do it." How does that process work? There's no real royalties involved. It's, it's just it's, it's a scenario of, of, of two brands collaborating to obviously um, enhance uh, their businesses. Some of the black brand collaborations are, um, come from the global business and they you know they worldwide collaborations, and that makes it certainly makes it easier because you've obviously got um, precedent that's set. Uh, but a lot of brand collaborations, especially in the, in the recent past, have been unique to South Africa, and um, they've definitely both our offering and both um, the collaborators' offering. So it's something that works very well in South Africa. Um, in terms of the, the South African business, we have to keep on reinventing ourselves. We have to keep uh, uh, innovative product top of mind and brand collaborations are certainly one of the, the best mechanisms to achieve this. And they seem to be very popular. I mean, you are turning them out almost on a monthly basis, if I'm correct. Correct. So, so now... With obviously the again the precedent that uh, they've shown success and that they are popular, that um, brands are approaching us, we're approaching brands, and um, the statistics back up the fact that it works and it's easier to obviously grow that in the future. So with these collaborations, there must be a hell of a lot of research and development going into what the next big donut is going to be. I mean, you've always got your standard, your classic donuts, but now you're going to have to do something even more exciting, even you know more outrageous. Uh, how much time and money goes into doing that research and development? You're absolutely right. And, and the, the longer we exist, the harder it becomes to become creative because you know, you've thought of all the ideas. But, but the reality is we are a global brand. We do leverage on, on um, global intellectual property and we have able to... So that would be the starting point. We're also an, an occasions business, and a calendar occasions present themselves every year. So it's easy to, you know, you know, you've got to come up with an offering for Christmas, for Valentine's Day, for Easter, etc., etc. So that's obviously the framework. 
we work a year in advance. So our R&D team um, work a year in advance. They put the ideas together. We then um, engage with the global business. We see what works there, what doesn't work. Um, we work with uh, partners in terms of collaborations, like you say. And um, the team are dedicated and very skilled in putting out really, really unique products. And um, it, it's something that is vital to, to the success of our business. Jerry, where would you say taking sort of the, the, the classic 80-20 uh, principle is you, sort of where are most of your sales coming from when it comes to this vast amount of donuts that you have in your display case? I mean, surely not all of them can be top sellers. No, so at any one time, we've got a, a maximum of about 18 varieties uh, in our showcase. Um, it's the, uh, the classics are always the top sellers. So, you know, they're always... Um, Top of the pile with, with our iconic original blaze donut being being the, the, the number one seller, um, uh, and then we've got a, a, like a stable base of about five donuts that never never leave the top ten. And then the limited offerings come in and they disrupt um, uh, disrupt sales, and, and, and we see what works. And some of those limited offerings have to stay because um, market out there will crucify us if we take them off. So it is, it's a delicate balancing act because we can't have more than, than what the showcase can display. Um, and you, unfortunately, you need to take, take some, some varieties out, but they don't deserve to be taken out. What's one of those varieties that has stuck around, even though it was a limited edition at the time? The, the one that's top of mind is the uh, Miltop Donut. So we, we produced a Miltop Donut for our first Heritage Day in 2016. I'm gonna have to ask and about the, the so. I'm gonna have to ask about the peppermint crisp tart one as well. Did that manage to get a bit of traction or or not? It's got a lot of traction, and then we bring it back back um, when when we, we, we run a promotion of the donut of the day. And we also have a limited offering where we, we call it fan favorites, where we we get an updated to bring back certain donuts, and peppermint crisp was always was always top of mind, and it also fell into that heritage day. Well, you can take over the country with a milk tart and a peppermint crisp tart. It's it's unbelievable how popular South Africans uh, uh, are enjoying that. Now, Jerry, what are your plans now for 2021? I mean, 2020 was a bit of a disrupted year. I mean, I suppose most businesses were just trying to hang on and just keep uh, the wheels turning. Uh, any sort of major steps that you're planning for this year? Yeah. So, obviously, like you say, 2020 was a major disruption. We've got to go back to, to what we believe in and to our core values. And it's, it's really about re-establishing this business, um, transforming the business with compassion, making sure that we look after our most important assets, which are our team members and, 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 and our guests, and um, growing the business again in, in, a, in a turbulent world. So um, keeping all the skills that we've got, keeping all the people that we've, that we've invested in over the last five years and growing the business. We, we have got, uh, we are on to our second store of the year opens tomorrow and our third store of the year opens at the end of um, April actually in Rustenburg, which is great for us because we move into the northwest. Um, and we need to carry on growing. We need to grow stores. We need to uh, grow what we call our delivered fresh daily business, which is the, the pre-packed donuts of premise and pick and pan engine. And um, then look at going to the other regions. Uh, you know, there's a, we've been inundated to get into the Eastern Cape, into the Free State, into Pumalanga, into Limpopo. So there's a lot of uh, the runways there. It's just to now navigate this new world, be in a position where we can understand the new world so we can plan and set ourselves up for success.
I mean, do you have sort of a general sense of how big the donut market is in South Africa? We do have a runway, and then we do have a pipeline of where we believe we need to be. Uh, we're currently sitting at uh, 23 stores, 25 stores by the end of the month, and um, we believe by 2025 we should be at at least uh, 50 stores, and like I say, in the other three regions that we're not represented in. Obviously, on a smaller scale, um, being a fresh product delivered daily, whichever region we enter, we need to set up a production facility to be able to produce those fresh donuts and deliver them to, to our markets daily. So it's, it's a business of scale, it's capital intensive, there's a lot of work to do to get it, to get to the 50 stores and to, to get this um, national coverage that we're after, but we certainly have to the task and we certainly have the people in, in our, in our organisation that are dedicated and um, certainly knowledgeable enough to get it out. I mean, it's hard to re-engineer a successful recipe, but are you finding a little bit of pressure coming along with uh, sort of the likes of sugar taxes, the gluten-free movement, uh, people trying to maybe live a little bit healthier as best they can? Is there at some point uh, a tipping point where you have to start looking at donuts that are going to be, you know, gluten-free and xylitol, you know, infused and, and whatever else people are sort of coming up with? Yeah, so interesting you bring that up. I think that's been around for longer than you think. Um, it's just a bit mind at the moment, which is maybe a little bit underlying. Um, you know, we're, we're a want, um, not a need, we understand that, but we talk about experience, we, we really believe that everybody deserves a happy place, and now and again you've got to indulge, and, and we'll just target that, that moment of indulgence, as opposed to, ideally we will worry about what we're in control of, and what we're not in control of, then we won't, we won't focus on. So, we're in control of an experience, we're in control of what we believe is we want to make it the most awesome donut uh, experience imaginable. And, and, and when we can play in that space and it's time for indulgence for the community and the consumer, we'll make sure that we talk about it. Oh, fantastic. Well, Jerry Thomas, he's the Managing Director of Krispy Kreme in South Africa. I thank you for making the time. And uh, quickly, before we end off, what's your favorite Krispy Kreme donut? What's the one that you go to when you get a chance? And that'd be the original place. Keep it simple, basic, and it's in the way product has been around for over 80 years, so uh, heritage for me. Can't go wrong with that. And uh, if you're ever in uh, in Santon or in Rosebank, make sure you pop into that store. They've got a fantastic display where you can actually watch the donuts coming off the machine. And uh, sure. there's nothing that beats it as it comes out of the oven. Uh, that is the you know the the, the apex of uh, the original Krispy Kreme donut. So, Jerry, thank you so much, and uh, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me. From Santin to the world, this is the Santin Times Podcast. All right, so most of us enjoyed our Easter long weekend, and uh, we're all in level one, and I was actually just chatting to some family in Europe, and we were catching up on how things are going there, and what are they having to deal with, and they're asking me, so how are things going down in South Africa, and you know, we kind of give them the regular update as to what level one's like, and kind of what we're doing, and what our curfew is, and where you get to do, and what you got to do, and how you get to do it, and yeah, I mean, it's it's all very interesting, but you know... The Easter long weekend was another interesting one because we had a brief announcement just before that to say, you know, there's going to be another alcohol ban and uh, there's going to be a couple of adjustments just to kind of keep everything in check. But it's really tough to decide what that really means if you're not really at the coal face of it, if you're not really experiencing what 
the healthcare sector is dealing with on a on a daily basis. And I know we briefly chatted to uh, the team at NetK911 just as we went into lockdown when we had a hardcore lockdown where there was no alcohol whatsoever. You couldn't buy it, you couldn't sell it, you couldn't do anything with it. And uh, they were saying, gee, you know, their, their weekends are completely quiet. There's no ambulances going out. There's not picking up any parts anywhere on the highway. It's just nothing. Like something they've never experienced before. And I'm sure there's a lot of other agencies and a lot of other medical and emergency services who probably had a very similar story a year ago. Right now, I decided, well, let's get somebody who's on you know, the front line. And uh, I follow her on Instagram. And uh, I saw a story she put up just after the uh, Easter uh, long weekend. And it was horrifying. I mean, I don't want to get too uh, gory or detailed on it. But I mean, in one of the stories, she was literally holding up her her white um, pumps or uh, sneakers that she was wearing. And they were covered in every single you know bodily fluid you can imagine. And I thought, gee whiz, this woman's been working A, very long, and B, doesn't look very pleasant. So I thought, let me get her on the line. She's uh, Dr. Karinia Kasvalu. She's a trauma doctor in ER at a private hospital group. And uh, doctor, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be in Sandton, in Cape Town. Well, listen, sorry we it's taken us so long to, to chat, but uh, neither one of ours faults. I know that you've been unbelievably busy ever since the Easter weekend came and went. Maybe in your own words, just Give us a picture as listeners as to what you had to deal with on the long Easter weekend and basically everything after that. Gosh, okay. Our point, where do I start this story? So um, it, it was the first time in a very, very long time since I think all of this had started that I kind of saw again what – uh, how else do I say this? The old South Africa, the pre-COVID South Africa um, looked like to me. We sort of have lived in this kind of lockdown piece of reducing trauma numbers and mainly drink or drinking related incidents. And then Easter weekend came along this year and it was like, bam, take us back to 2019. But again, still not even to that level, which is scary because obviously having had the stark difference between this year and last year, it's almost worrying to think about what it really is going to be like again when everything is normal. But I, sorry, I think I've completely jumped the gun here, but it's, it's, it's kind of, it wasn't, it was next level. I'd started my day on that day that you'd seen the post at actually 4.30 in the morning. I was covering for a colleague and I walked in and the first case was an intoxicated driver who had broken a very, very important bone in his neck and he had just escaped becoming paralyzed. He's the breadwinner of his family, highly intoxicated. And then my day ended with driving home literally 30 seconds behind this huge another huge accident by an intoxicated driver. And usually I would just drive past to make sure everything's okay, that there's help, someone's being called. And I drove past and I was like, oh my God, no, this is the one, this is the time where no one's there. Like, skies hang out of his car. So, I mean, if there was ever a time that I was reminded, it, you, I couldn't hide from it. None of us could hide from it. It was, you know, even driving home, pretending that you didn't have to go through the day you went through, it was like, oh, well, look, if you didn't want to remember, we'll help you. You know, South African doctors, let us show you what we can do. So, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but just give us a sense of what the difference 
an alcohol ban makes or doesn't make if it's in place or not in place? Let's put it this way. Prof Nickel, of, um, in, he's one of the, he wrote the handbook of trauma out here in South Africa and he heads the trauma unit at Hrutuskia. So I used to work under him in 2017. I was a medical officer in the trauma unit. So I know firsthand what it's like to be in those insane environments. And, you know, when he released a statement saying that there was a 60% reduction in trauma patients admissions and presentations I was floored <laughs> and this was last year once we went into hard lockdown I was like well I, if this was the way it was always I don't think I would have left trauma but I had such a point of burnout and frustration that it was just intolerable just hearing him say that I know for sure, at least on a state level, it was, I mean, it was next level. They were having nights that they'd never seen before. I think my colleagues were finally getting a little bit of a breather. And the same was running true in, in private. Like, you're not putting words in my mouth. It's evident. It's statistically evident. Um, and I will tell you what any other South African doctor will tell you, whether in state or private, especially in state. Huge reduction. 60% is, is that's and. Fathomable. That just shows if we could control the way we drank as a nation, we could make huge changes in our healthcare system as it is as a baseline. The burden that we put on, on the healthcare system is next level. I mean, what country has had to ban alcohol? We've just shown ourselves, really. So, Doctor, give me a sense of what you were dealing with on that Easter weekend and obviously all the surgeries you've had to do uh, afterwards, you know, within, you know, the parameters that you can. But just to get a sense of what the injuries are that you're dealing with when you take some of these people into surgery. So, we would call we would call um, these kind of cases most often uh, polytraumas. So, polytrauma is sort of just the fancy medical wa- word of saying that there are three or more injuries in three or more um, main organs or, or bones, etc. So, what we were seeing a lot of were mainly orthopedic related. So, a lot of fractures, which broken bones, a lot of open fractures where, you know, it's that sort of really grim image of the bones sticking out the skin and um, a lot of head injuries. So a lot of neurological injuries and spinal injuries. And then obviously we do get our internal organ injuries. But this weekend, where I work at least, um, it was a lot of head injuries and, and limb injuries. But in state where things, you know, there is a lot more gang violence, etc., that does filter into them, they were seeing definitely a lot more internal organ uh, damage and injuries but these the main injuries that we're seeing at, at this time are alcohol related motor car accidents that's our number one traumatic my words are failing me cause of death for in trauma especially in south africa drunk driving huge problem and those end up generally unlike you know a gunshot to the abdomen those end up with being Head injuries, spine injuries, broken bones, polytraumas, not really isolated, multiple areas of injury. So that's what we were seeing. And they're usually high impact, very high impact. They're, they're disastrous. They're disastrous. So give me a sense of what kind of drinking we're talking about. I mean, are people having sort of one or two glasses of wine and then head home or are we talking about some serious binge drinking? 
in the cases of the patients that I had seen, these were serious drinkers. There are definitely less intoxicated people on the road who are getting their way through. But the, the patients of mine who came in or who were involved in high-impact traumas were heavily intoxicated. And that's the scary thing is that people think like, how do you even, like, I mean, it's, yeah. So these were not mildly intoxicated people. They were highly intoxicated. Again, you must also understand that the drivers, those were the drivers, but then they were those that they crashed with who were not intoxicated. Passengers in the car who were just merely, you know, unfortunately the victims of these um, injuries. What we did see a lot of, though, which is actually really interesting. So it's not necessarily just the trauma numbers that go up, but the amount of alcohol-related medicine. So, for example, you get a condition called pancreatitis that can be caused, one of the causes, one of the main causes, alcohol intoxication. We saw a huge increase in that, and that can be, that is actually a very dangerous condition, which also then increases hospital admissions. And a lot of our patients who drink too much end up having fits and seizures, or they end up withdrawing from alcohol the next day and having epilepsy. So we were just seeing a lot of alcohol-related medicine. The trauma 100% is up there, sky high. But I think in my setting as well, when it's in, in private, where we're seeing a lot of not necessarily like large amounts of trauma, like Hrutuski or Baragwanath, we're seeing a lot of medical-related alcohol uh, problems, which is actually really fascinating because now it's sort of like simmered down. And I'm really looking, not forward to it, I'm really interested in seeing what happens um, over the next long weekend, what comes in and it's probably going to be the same pattern, you know, fits, um, pancreatitis and car accidents. It's quite interesting, really, what, what, what we saw over that weekend. And it's sort of disappeared now. All of a sudden, like, you know, it's back to sort of normal-ish medicine. It's mind-blowing to see, actually. When you talk about some of the people, the patients that you you know, come across as you're sitting and doing sort of 12-hour shifts a day, going from one surgery to the next surgery. A lot of us will believe that it's never me, it's somebody else. There's always the sort of mystical somebody out there who, you know, is 10 times worse than me and can't control themselves and can't look after themselves. And if I have two drinks, I'm fine. Who are those people that you end up finding? I mean, in terms of sort of age, uh, age-wise, give us sort of a broad picture as to who we're dealing with. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Sorry, but you've you've beautifully narrowed me down to giving this answer that is very typical in the cases that I see. All young, generally around my age, in their 30s, often even younger. Male as well, a huge issue. All of the patients who suffered polytraumas who were the drivers were male. The passengers were kids and females and no one was over the age of, in my weekend, no one was over the age of 38. Um, this is obviously very, this is a very, this is a niche number. This is just one doctor in one trauma unit, including the accident that I saw on the road that ended up going to a state facility, very young. And this is the thing. So being in within this age group, and I keep on ranting off to my friends and to my family and, you know, to everyone I can see and like tell, like, you know, guys, 
if we, if you are, I know we all think it can't happen to us, but me just driving home past an intoxicated driver who then crashed, if I was even just 30 seconds earlier, I would have been the person he had crashed into. And the problem is the highway was packed that day. So you may not be that person, but you may be the carnage involved. And that's the problem. These accidents are never isolated. Very rarely are they isolated. In fact, one of my colleagues was driving to work the other day. She works out of Mitchell's plane. She passed three accidents on her way. One of them was carnage as well. The other one was pretty isolated, but that was because it was on a long stretch of a road where there was some sort of space, you know, for it to be kind of isolated. But where I had seen the accident on the end is notorious. And, you know, it's, it's just it, all, everyone, all shapes and sizes, sober, not sober, whatever it may be, um, ambulance drivers, doctors, whoever it is driving home. And this is the thing. I don't understand why our younger population are so fearless. What is it about our our age group? What is it about what we think we can do that makes us invincible? You know, we always heard about, I suppose, COVID affecting older people. We kind of have this like attitude of we can do what we want. And, you know, in South Africa, if we get caught, we'll get out of it um, without really thinking beyond that. And I think this is what scares me is that I'm in it every day. So I get to see that these are people that could be my friends that are my age. And that's what's worrying. And I, I don't understand if we are going out to drink, especially, and especially as men in South Africa, and this is where the trauma rates and statistically it will show you that it is high amongst our, our young male population. That is what kills our younger male population is trauma. Um, I don't understand why they are not saying they as in men because I'm a female, not, you know, trying to be sexist, but I don't understand why that gender group is feeling more comfortable with getting into a car and driving, whereas myself and a lot of my single female friends will order an Uber and get into it alone in South Africa, where we already have such a femicide problem. You know, that weekend, the weekend after I'd gone out to meet some friends, I got into an Uber by myself, I got back into an Uber to get home by myself. So what is it amongst our, our male population that make us make them feel so invincible? I'm yet to find a female intoxicated driver in the past two months come in being the cause of the accident, and that is the truth. Obviously, they are. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not at all saying that there are no female intoxicated drivers who are causing major accidents. But it's, it's very common amongst our peer group. I don't know where this sort of superhero complex comes from. And I do not know why people think that it will never happen to them. Because it's happened to someone I know in my family. Haven't we all known someone who's been involved in a or died from a you know, drunk driver? So this is what I don't understand. And I think if South Africans could get onto the road with us and see what it was like to face a polytrauma accident like that and the gore of it and the the, the long-lasting effects. Like this patient that I saw, if, I, I don't know in the end if he survived or not, but his face, just something as superficial as his face, is never going to look the same again. Half of his face was missing, let alone the neurological damage he's going to have sustained. His life is never going to be the same again. I mean, imagine living your whole life just having something as 
you're able to walk and perform your daily activities of life and you haven't become paralyzed, but you've got this insane tinnitus ringing in your ear and dizziness and you can't run the 50k marathon you used to be able to run. You can only do 1k. These are happening to people our age. It just is mind-blowing because people don't... I think the other problem is people who suffer these injuries sort of go into hiding and they aren't social again in the crowds that they used to be. So no one really gets to understand what the actual after effects are except for the people that are closest to them. But it's not common. It's not commonly seen. It's not, you know, generally those head injury patients also sort of wean out of their social group. So I think that's also a lot of the problem. You know, is that it's sort of lost to follow up for lack of better terms. And so maybe that's what makes us feel invincible. You know someone's had it, but you don't really get to see how it's actually affected them in a day-to-day life. And you don't, you haven't bothered to really ask them what it's done to them. So you think it's okay for you to get into your car because XYZ got out of a drunk driving accident and is still walking. But you have no idea what the other implications of their life is. Um, and I think that's the issue. And we get to see that in the four walls of our hospital. Well, Doctor, I think you've put in a good disclaimer, and I think that's uh, maybe just something worth echoing, is to say that, you know, this is by no means any sort of scientific research or any sort of yes. like, you know, definitive sort of broad national sort of survey that we're going through here. This is really a, 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 a sort of a, a dipstick, a um, moment-in-time conversation, like you've said. A doctor in a city, in a hospital, on a Easter or long weekend experiencing what you experienced. And I think it's important to sometimes also hear those stories because they put a face to what often is just broad numbers. You know, when we used to hear on Easter weekend, you know, two and a half thousand people died on the road. For a lot of people, it went, what does that mean? You know, it's it's a broad number. If you didn't know anybody who was in that accident, it's a, you know, I think Stalin said it's a statistic. You know, if it's a person, it's a tragedy. And if it's many, it's a statistic. So, you know, it, this just gives us a chance to really understand what it's like at the coalface and what someone who is in that profession or is a healthcare worker is going through. On the other side of all of this, you know, you're think, you know, you think you're just having an extra four shots of tequila before you head home, and uh, you don't realize what the potential implications are without sounding like some sort of body corporate or old grandfather. Uh, I think often when you're saying it's young people, you've got your whole life ahead of you. Do you really want to be walking around with, you know, half a face or a brain injury or you know having taken out your whole family uh, that had nothing to do with any of this? Doctor, you've been very outspoken about a lot of these things on social media where a lot of doctors are generally steering away from trying to rock the boat or upset major organizations or to, you know, kind of just, you know, throw the cat amongst the pigeons in society. Why are you so outspoken? I'm so scared one day it's going to get me into trouble. So just to emphasize what you did say, Alex, this is, again, just my experience. So thank you. I think it's very important people here that I do not speak for everyone up I've gotten backlash for that before. So it's very important. But what you've said, which is even more important, as you say, is that um, it's it, it sort of puts a face to the story. And I love the little quote you said. And I think that's what makes me speak, is that, you know, so for me, it stems from, so I grew up in a medical family. My dad um, was a doctor. He's late, but he was a doctor, so I, you know, a GP. And I got to see what you know he kind of did when patients would come home. I grew up with cousins who were doctors. I was a medical student, and I kind of had an idea of what medicine was like. And I didn't truly understand, actually, even then, 
until more recently in my life, maybe not even fully as an intern, but later on in my life, the actual responsibility it is to have a life in your hand as the more senior person. Because, you know, being a student in a medical family or being an intern where you're so pretty protected, often, not always, you don't really understand the implications but you do, you do, but you don't actually understand that that feeling that goes, that adrenaline sort of fear, feeling PTSD from seeing something like that, that literally can make your arm go numb. So as that started happening and it, I became more responsible for those patients as I became more senior, did I become more vocal? So at this accident, this guy could not have been luckier. He crashed around the corner from a ambulance base in Cape Town where there was myself driving home from a shift, another doctor, wonderful doctor, who also was driving home for a shift on into who stopped, an ambulance was on the way and there were actually three medical students who were just returning, I mean interns, who were returning home from their Easter weekend who happened to stop there just before me. So I'm losing myself in this, but but I think what I getting there was that there were these three young interns and they helped me as best they could, but they looked so shell-shocked. And eventually I told them, like, I said, thank you for helping me and you guys go home, don't worry, like, I've got this. One of the paramedics arrived and we carried on. But again, that's a, a great, that is for me, when I thought about it, that's how we kind of protected as younger health professionals. And as I started getting older and I started becoming more responsible for patients, I became more confident in being able to have a say or have a word, especially as a female in a very dominant male masculine fraternity. And um, being frustrated in the system and by the general behavior of my fellow South Africans, that it's been hard to keep my big mouth closed. And I think a lot of it also stems from having a little bit more insight into my own struggles of anxiety and, you know, depression. And a lot of it stems from my career. And that's why I've become outspoken as well as that a lot of doctors keep quiet and they don't want to say things and they don't want to put their head on the chopping block. And unfortunately, I just feel like I'm doing my own medical colleagues a disservice by not speaking because they're the ones who are suffering the burden in silence when I just can't watch this go down and know what my colleagues in state are going through. You know, their parents, they are, you know, I've had colleagues who have literally had miscarriages on call, they've had to finish a call, you know, who have kids at home who are celebrating birthdays, but they're doing another 30-hour shifts. And I just feel like if someone were to speak up and to humanize not just the patients who go through and what could happen to you as a patient, but to also put a face to the health fraternity who have to go through this, who've experienced burnout or depression, who have stayed away from home for Easter weekend to spend it on their own in ER coming home and then have to go through all these traumatic things and then you go home to yourself still. And and that's why I just can't keep my mouth closed. And that's what happened in COVID as well, is that I couldn't be with my family. I was stuck here. I went home. I came back to myself, by myself, and I experienced these major traumas and traumatic events on my own. And no, not all medical doctors are completely isolated, but it made me feel even more isolated than the average doctor who may be married or with family. And 
I just couldn't help but speak off of those who may have been going through it in silence because those who were not necessarily going through it alone were also feeling it on enormous levels. And that's why I just can't keep my mouth closed about it because we could affect change. If we could put down a law that showed a 60% reduction in trauma admissions, which made a huge relief to my colleagues in state where they are overburdened and opened up beds and ICU and literally just opened up hands. There were more hands on board to help with actual COVID patients. And this was because we are now talking, like people actually now listening to doctors, not all of, not not everyone. We're also, for some unknown reason, I'm very much hated since COVID started, but people are starting to listen and they're starting to, as you say, put a face to the story. We're looking at the the doctors and, you know, COVID and they were wearing the masks and, you know, they were dense in your face and you hadn't slept. And, and people are actually, they sat at home, they were locked down for the first time in their lives, were working from home. They literally couldn't do anything on the weekend. And now everyone's clapping at eight o'clock at night for the first time ever. But doctors have been doing this for years. The trauma numbers were worse. And my colleagues and I always have a bit of a giggle. We're like, it's so nice that people are appreciating us. And we don't take it for granted. And we're so grateful, so happy that people are seeing the work that we do. The irony is, is it's been so much worse. And no one clapped. Everyone was just drinking and driving home still. And that's the biggest irony. Well, Dr. Karinia Kazvalu, she's a trauma doctor in an ER uh, in a private hospital group. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time out of what has been a very long day and a very long week um, in terms of what you've had to see, what you've had to deal with, uh, to chat to us, maybe to share, as I say, uh, a peek into the life of uh, a healthcare worker in South Africa in 2021. And I hope we get to chat to you again in the not-too-distant future. I think there's lots we still need to talk about and uh, it'd be great to have you on again. Awesome, thank you. And I'm sorry, I just I realized I just went on a little rant there at the end. I'm so sorry. But thank you so much for having me on. And I really just hope you hear some of what I've had to say because it's, you know, the bottom line is, is don't cap for us during COVID. Let's all be socially responsible on the roads because that's a huge issue, you know, socially responsible on the roads, socially responsible when it comes to COVID and everything. Let's just be more cautious with how we can affect changes within our country so that our health systems and our doctors and our healthcare workers don't feel like they want to crumble and, and leave. Online. Mobile. Anywhere. Anytime. This is the Santin Times Podcast. Yeah, that's it for another episode of the Sand Times podcast. I hope you found it as interesting as I did uh, this past uh, hour. Thank you to my guests uh, who have made this week's episode possible. And as always, if you want to reach out to the Sand Times, you can email editor at sandtimes.co.za. You can connect with the Sand Times on social media at Sand Times. And don't forget to visit www.sandtimes.co.za for the latest and greatest news coming out of Santon and beyond. We're halfway through April. There's a couple of more public holidays we've got to get through. I think we've all gotten so used to having these four-day weeks that uh, long weekends are starting to become like normal weekends. And before we know it, we're going to be back to normal weeks, five days a week, and uh, it's going to feel quite weird. But whatever it is, make sure you go out and smash it. Thank you for listening, and let's connect again next week. 